right, well, this morning we have a lot to talk about. We're still doing the attributes of God, but this morning we're going to start looking at the Trinity. And this is part one of two, hopefully. And I know I just got a strange look, two? That's it? We could spend six years talking about the Trinity. We still won't cover it all. Um, Today I want to give you a basic biblical foundation. I want to cover some things that we need to discuss about how we talk about the Trinity, the use of analogies, and then I just want to open up the Bible and go through Bible verses that give us the foundation of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, It's a lot of Bible verses, Uh, which means to get through them all, I have to move quickly, so I would like to be able to sit down and say, okay, you find this verse, you find that verse, and do it that way. If we did that, we'll be here till next week. So, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of Bible verses to kind of build out this foundation. Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at the Trinity again, but we're going to bring all that together and we're going to talk about the actual doctrine of the Trinity and look at how the church has viewed this doctrine throughout the, history, throughout the church and look at some of the heresies that have been taught on the Trinity. But we begin this morning by just trying to build a biblical foundation. Before I start, I want to give you a basic definition of the Trinity Uh, This definition will come in handy as we start looking at what the Bible says. It's Wayne Grudem's definition. He gives really good, simple definitions. He defines it this way. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. God eternally exists. We talked about the eternality of God. He has always existed, and he has always existed as three persons persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even though that God exists as three persons, there is just one God. Each of those three persons is fully or truly God. All the attributes that we've discussed, all the attributes we have yet to discuss, apply to each of the three persons fully and completely. They each possess all of the attributes and they possess them perfectly. It's a basic idea of what the Trinity is. Now, when we talk about the Trinity, it's not like we're talking about some secondary doctrine. There are some doctrines that you and I can disagree on. You could have a view of the rapture and say the rapture happens at the middle of the tribulation and we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. The Trinity is not one of those areas that you and I can disagree on. It's central to the Christian faith. When you talk about the rapture, you could probably use wording that's considered a little bit more loose. You don't have to be as careful with your wording because you're probably not going to teach heresy if you teach something the wrong way. But when you talk about the Trinity, words matter. They matter a lot. If you use imprecise language, and if you don't define your terms well, you end up teaching error. You end up teaching the wrong thing. And you end up sowing confusion. And we'll talk about how this confusion happens. A lot of times people have trouble with the Trinity just because they haven't defined the terms. And they use terms that they don't really understand or they're using the term one way and the person they're talking to is using the term in a different way and they just two ships passing in the night. Dr. James White talks about this. Here's what he said. He said, the single greatest reason people struggle with the doctrine of the Trinity is miscommunication. It is very rare that anyone actually argues or debates about the real doctrine of the Trinity. Most arguments that take place at the door or over coffee involve two or more people fighting vigorously over two or more misrepresentations of the doctrine itself. If we don't get our terminology right, if we don't get our wording right, we end up saying the wrong thing, and we just miss each other. One of the biggest problems you'll have with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses at your door is they take Christian terms that you think you know what they're saying, and they're using them completely differently. When you talk about the Trinity, words matter. The slightest little change in your wording, you don't have a difference of opinion. When you change the wording in the Trinity, you have a different religion because you're talking about a new God. Human language, our language itself, has significant limitations, and these limitations impact our discussion on the Trinity. 
One of them we've already talked about, language has baggage. That is to say, when you enter into a discussion about the Trinity, the words that you use already have meaning to you. The words that you use already have meaning to the person that you're talking to. And the problem is, sometimes your meaning isn't the same as theirs. Your definitions aren't the same as theirs. And we carry these preconceptions, these pre-understandings, these, these meanings we already had, we carry those into our understanding of who God is. Or a word will bring a picture into our mind. And we'll take that picture and we'll superimpose that picture onto God. And we'll describe God with our meaning or the picture that we have in our minds rather than being precise in our language and getting it right. That's the first limitation. Language has baggage. You have preconceived notions of what words mean. Second limitation. Human language does not properly explain God. If you're trying to describe something in the world, you're, the human language is devised for a finite mind. It's devised so human beings with finite, sin-cursed minds can communicate. And it's primarily used to describe and to communicate things that happen on the earth. Finite things. The problem is, the God of Scripture is completely unique. He's not like anything in this creation. He's not like anything in the world. We are finite. He is infinite. We are imperfect. He is perfect. Our human language is unable to fully explain and describe the nature of God and the nature of the Trinity. Have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to someone? and you just kind of got a loss for words, you didn't know what to say, that's going to happen because the language is not capable of fully and adequately describing who God is. And in the absence of a clear expression, when you have no other words to explain something, what do you do? You either go quiet or you try to use a word picture. In preaching, we call these illustrations. They're also called analogies. And we take what we're trying to explain and we relate it to something else that's easy to understand, that's easy to grasp. And people do this with the Trinity. They try to take the Trinity and describe the Trinity using something in the world. We call this an analogy. The Trinity is like fill in the blank. What's the problem there? The Trinity isn't like anything in the world. When we're talking about the Trinity, analogies for the Trinity are dangerous. He's not like anything in the world, which means at some point, every analogy, every word picture that you use to describe the Trinity will break down. At some point, you are going to misrepresent or distort the Trinity, intentionally or unintentionally. Most of the time, it's unintentional. Here's the reality. Since you're teaching on the nature of God, since you're trying to describe God himself, when you misrepresent the Trinity, whether we do it intentionally or unintentionally, it is heresy. Words here matter. We've got to get this right. Let me give you two examples of analogies, just so you can see this played out. How many of you have heard this one? The Trinity is like water, ice, and water vapor. Who's heard that? Okay, it's pretty common. Good, honest, solid Christians have used this to try to explain the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, if you want to understand this analogy and understand how it breaks down, you need to start by just looking at the relationship of water, ice, and water vapor. How are those three related to each other? Yeah, same substance. But these are in a different state or a different form. It's all H2O. Water is H2O in the liquid form. Water vapor is H2O in the gas form. And ice is water in the solid form. They're all the same substance, but they're all in a different form. 
One substance, three forms. You see how people get to the Trinity here? So this analogy teaches that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all the same substance, the same essence. And to that we would say, amen. Yes, they are. That is true. But where does this break down? It breaks down when you get to the part about three different forms. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not three different forms. Let me put that in a different way. In human terms, today I'm going to dress up and I'm going to be a firefighter. Tomorrow I'm going to come back, I'm going to be dressed as a police officer. The next day I'm going to come back, I'm going to be dressed as a chef. Same person, three different forms. By saying that they are like water, ice, and water vapor, you're saying that the Trinity is all the same person. They just show up in a different way. They just look different every time they show up. This is the ancient heresy of modalism. Now, I say it's an ancient heresy, but it's still alive and well today. Anybody know a modalist today? Anybody? T.D. Jakes. I went to his website, and I found his beliefs page. I did not edit or alter this picture at all. This is the screenshot. Potter's house. Here's what he says about the Trinity. There is one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect and eternally existing in three manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where's the problem here? Manifestations. If it wasn't for the word manifestations, if he would have used a different term here, we'd agree with him. Three persons. If he wouldn't have used manifestations, we would have agreed. We'd at least be able to say, maybe we don't think you explained it the best. You could say he could have said more about it. But it's the term manifestations that makes this heresy. Because they're not three different forms, three different manifestations. They are three unique persons. Let me give you one more example. The Trinity is like an apple. One apple, three parts, skin, meat, and core. Again, what's the relationship between the three? It's all one apple, right? Now, we've talked about some attributes here. Anybody see a problem in the wording of that analogy? Parts, simplicity. Yeah, so you could say they don't have the same chemical composition, so they're not technically all the same substance. But I think the analogy here sits on, it's one apple. The analogy teaches that God has three parts. It's a basic denial of simplicity. If you take this and apply it to the Trinity, what that says is you get one part of God. If you have Jesus, you get a part of him. If you get the Father, you get another part of God. If you have the Spirit, you have another part of God, which means his attributes are divided. So some of us in the room are going to get his mercy. Some of us in the room are going to get his wrath. Some of us are going to get only his justice. That's a scary thought. God is not divided. Okay. But I really need to use word pictures. It's just, that's the way I teach. I need to be able to use an analogy. If I'm going to talk about the Trinity, you've got to let me use analogies. Okay, fine. If you want to use an analogy, use it to describe what the Trinity is not. The Trinity is not like water, ice, and water vapor. The Trinity is not like an apple with three parts. That's how you can effectively use an analogy. But any other analogy to try to make a positive assertion about God is inevitably going to at some point break down and you're going to end up distorting the Trinity and that's not good, okay? Now, other people have said, well, hang on a sec, because I looked in my Bible, the word Trinity isn't in there. This is used as an, as an objection. It's not biblical. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, and that is true. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. It was first coined by a guy named Tertullian. I won't, we won't get into whether or not he had a right doctrine there. The term is merely used to summarize the biblical teaching. It's just what we call the, the doctrine. 
the term in and of itself isn't what's important here. Because the doctrine itself is biblical. And our goal today is to give you the biblical foundation of the doctrine. But you need to understand that the doctrine of the Trinity is the result of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation says that God did not reveal everything in a moment. That the truth is revealed starting in Genesis 1 and is not fully revealed until the end of Revelation. There are indicators or indications of the Trinity in the Old Testament. We're going to look at some of them. But the Trinity is primarily and most clearly revealed in the New Testament. Does that make sense? So most of our evidence will come from the New Testament this morning. But we're going to spend some time in the Old. Right? Um, Any questions so far? Comments? All right. Before I go into all the evidence, we need to get one thing settled. And that one thing we need to make sure we have settled is that there is only one God. And no matter what else we look at today, we cannot say for any reason that we have denied that one simple truth. There is one God. Deuteronomy 4, verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God, and there is no other besides Him. 1 Kings 8, verse 60. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. All of Scripture is inspired. All of Scripture was written through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? God does not contradict himself. So any verse that we look at in the next few minutes that describes a plurality or uses the plural to describe God cannot be saying that there is more than one God. Because then the Holy Spirit would be contradicting himself. He has said very clearly there is only one God. So anything else we look at this morning must agree with that one statement. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Just one. Now in the context here, Deuteronomy 6.4 is going to be describing God as being the only God for Israel. But there's something interesting about that term, one. There is another term in the Hebrew language for one that would refer to a single person or a single object. This one, this term, is used to refer to a unity of plurality. We would say this church is a group of people, right? But we are one. It's a unity of plurality. It's a unity of a group. That's what that term does. It's a unity of a group. But it's not just here that you can find an indication of the Trinity. This certainly isn't a proof text. You can go to the names used of God and find an indication of the Trinity. One of the most common names used of God in the Old Testament, Elohim, is plural. There is a singular form. There is a form that is just one. That's not it. He could have used a singular, but he uses the term Elohim. It's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Okay. Elohim is also used to describe false gods. And when it's used there, it describes multiple false gods. And it's translated as gods. Here, Elohim is used, but it's singular when it's translated. And that's because of the verb that's right behind it. If you were to take out the word God and translate this verse literally without God in it, it would literally say, in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. 
The verb there describes a single subject creating with a plural God. Now, is this proof? Is this absolute proof that the Trinity is true? Is this a proof text? No. Looking back with New Testament revelation, we see it's an indication. It's not a proof text. There are no proof texts in the Bible for the Trinity. The Trinity is derived from looking at all of Scripture and bringing together everything Scripture says. If there was a proof text, this class would take about five minutes. This is not the only place, the name is not the only place a plural is used to speak of God. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. I'll stop reading there. Remember also your Creator. It's a participle. It describes the one who is creating, but it's plural. The ones who created you. It's plural. Again, not an absolute proof of the Trinity, but it is a good indicator. Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your husband is your maker whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. And again, your maker is a participle, and it's plural. The ones who made you. It's not singular. But it's not only the Old Testament that refer to God with plural nouns and participles. Oh, excuse me. Not only does the Old Testament refer to God with plural nouns and participles, it also uses adjectives and nouns to describe God in the plural. Um, Genesis 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us. Those three words, let us make, is one word in Hebrew. It's one word. And it's in the first person plural. So if you were going to assign a pronoun to it, it would be our or we. We make. Let us make. Then he uses our image. One image that belongs to a group. Or our likeness. One image, that, or one likeness, that belongs to a group. It's in the plural. It's not singular. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. He didn't say the man has become like me. He's become like us. Even when you get into Genesis 11 and you're talking about God bringing judgment because of the Tower of Babel. Come, let us go down. And they're confused their language so that they will not understand another, one another's speech. He's talking about the judgment that God is going to bring. This is God speaking. And he speaks of himself as us. That's not the English translation that's doing that. That's the Hebrew. It's us. Isaiah 6, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? One subject is doing the sending. The sending is being done for that subject. And that subject is described as us, plural, not singular, not me. Psalm 45, verse 6. In several places in the Old Testament, God is described, or multiple people are described as being God. Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Take the first God. We'll say that's God A. I'm not trying to teach multiple gods here. but And the second term, God, we're going to say is God B. Therefore, God A, your God B has anointed you. Speaking of God A. This can't be the same person talking to himself. I wouldn't say, Michael, you have anointed yourself. That wouldn't make any sense. This has to be referring to multiple persons. Hosea 1, verse 7. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. God is talking about he's going to hold off judgment on the nation of Judah. That would be the southern kingdom. And he says, but I will. What will I do? I will deliver them. Who's speaking here? Well, this is verse 7. If you were to go back to verse 6, you would see the Lord is speaking. The problem there is Lord is part of the English translation. You have to go back all the way back up to verse 2, where it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Lord there in verse 2 is Yahweh. And verse 7 is just continuing that, that discussion. Who's speaking in verse 7? Yahweh. It is Yahweh who says, I will have compassion on the house of Judah. And then he says this, and deliver them by the Lord their God. Yahweh says, I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by Yahweh. If it's one person, it makes no sense. Matthew 28, 19, the New Testament also uses plurals, multiples, to discuss God. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice you have three names. But when he says to baptize them, he says baptize them in the singular name. Three persons mentioned, but a single name. Leon Morris discussed this. What's the meaning of this singular name? Here's what he said. We should notice that the word name is singular. Jesus does not say that his followers should baptize in the names of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in the name of these three. It points to the fact that they are, in some sense, one. One single name is applied for all three. So, how are they the same? How are they one? How are they unified here? William Hendrickson, the baptizing must be into the name, note the singular, one name, hence one God. If it was three separate gods, it would be three separate names. One God for all three of them, or one name for all three is one God. And these three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are clearly represented in Matthew 3 at the baptism of Jesus. These can't be the same person. Matthew 3. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father is depicted in heaven. The Spirit is seen coming down like a dove. He's not a dove. He's coming down like a dove. And the Son is in the water. They can't be the same person. Three separate persons. Paul also describes three persons together in 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In the New Testament, when you see just a blank reference to God... It's a reference to the Father. So you have the love of God, which would be the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and you have them all put together. 
Now, you would never do this with one of our names. You would never say, the grace of Frank and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Why would you not say that? Well, one, he's not a very gracious guy, but why else would you not say that? I'm not God. To say that about me is to equate me with being God. You wouldn't do that with any of the other three. You wouldn't put someone's name in there and the fellowship of Michael. Because that would be equating him to being God. And yet, here Paul puts them all together. He unifies them. And he equates them all together. Same thing happens in Jude 20. But, be, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. All three persons are equated and put side by side with one another as being unified. You pray for the Holy Spirit, you wait anxiously for Jesus, and you keep yourself in the love of the Father. These three are together. They're one. And Scripture doesn't only just relate them all together. Scripture refers to them as being God. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Here we have two of the three mentioned, and both of them are related as being God. The Father is described as God. He says, but one God, the Father from whom are all things. He's clearly called God, and then he is ascribed the works of God. Creation is ascribed to him. And then you have a mention of Jesus, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. He's not directly called God, but the work of creation is ascribed to him. And he is said to be the one who created. Both of them together are presented as God side by side. Any questions so far? Comments? Okay. From here, what I want to do is I want to go through all three. The Father, Son, and the Spirit. And I want to look at what the Bible says about each of them. And we're going to prove from the Bible each of them are depicted as being God. We've already said how many gods are there. One. The next step is it's one God and three persons. We need to prove that each, each of the three are God. Let's do that. The Father is God. He's directly described as being God. Ephesians 4, verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Clearly described. He's called God. Romans 15. So that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus' Father is God. John six twenty seven, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. And again, when we find the title God here, here it's linked directly with the Father, but the title God is always a reference, unless it's, just, unless it's said otherwise, it's a reference to the Father. James 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Multiple times, the Father is described as being God, and he's flat out called God. But not only does the New Testament refer to him as being God, the New Testament also ascribes to him the attributes of God. All the attributes we've been talking about, you're going to see some of those attributes are ascribed to God, the Father. John 17, the Father said to be holy. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, 
Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. The Father is described as having the holiness of God. You wouldn't go to your earthly father and call him Holy Father. The Father is said to be righteous. John 17. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. The Father is described as having the attribute of righteousness, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. He said to have mercy. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The Father is described as being omnipresent. Matthew 6, verse 4, so that your giving will be, be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Can't say that about anybody else. Only God could see what you do in secret. Matthew 6, verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Not only does this teach the omnipresence of God, but this teaches the omniscience of the Father. He knows exactly what you're doing, even when no one else knows what you're doing. He's called God. He's given the attributes of God, and he's also assigned the rights and the prerogatives of God, and he exercises those rights. John 4, verse 23, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Only God can expect people to worship him. Only God could rightly demand other people come and give him worship. The Father forgives sin. In Mark 2, 6 and 7, we hear the Jews say, only God can forgive sin. And yet, Matthew 6, 14, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Mark 2 says, only God can forgive sins. And yet here in Matthew, the Father forgives sin. The Father also gives commands. John 14, but so the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Anyone in here want to give commands to Jesus? I mean, even if you say, well, he's the Messiah, but he's not God, you still wouldn't want to give him commands, would you? Only God would do that. I'm not saying you shouldn't think he's God, but even if someone held that position, only God would be able to give him commands. Father is described as God. He has the attributes of God. He exercises the works of God. Or I'm sorry, he exercises the rights of God and he performs the works of God. Mark 13, verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. The Father created. Only God creates, regardless of what the false teachers say. Only God creates. 1 Corinthians 8.6, we looked at this earlier. The Father from whom all, are all things, and we exist for Him. Everything was created by the Father. If the Father did creation, then the Father must be God. Acts 2 uh, 23 and 32 say that it is God who resurrects from the grave, who resurrects people. Romans 6, 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism and death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too might we walk in newness of life. The resurrection of Christ was ascribed to the Father, an act and a work that only God could accomplish. Romans 2.2 2 and Romans 2.5 both say that God is the one who executes judgment on the world. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for, for yourself in the day of wrath and the re revelation of a righteous judgment of God. 
Romans 2 says that God executes judgment. Matthew 15, 13 says the Father executes judgment. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. It's a picture of judgment. Okay. The Father is described as God. He has the attributes of God. He exercises the prerogatives and rights of God. And he does the works of God. Do you think we've made the case that the Father is God? Let's go to the Son. Like the Father, the Son is described as being God. People within the New Testament describe him as God. People in the Old Testament describe him as God too. John 1, verse 34, John the Baptist said, I myself have seen and have testified this is the Son of God. In that day, if you say you are the Son of God, it was a claim to deity. For him to say he is the Son of God is to say that he is divine. The Father calls Jesus God. Matthew 17, verse 5, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Angels say that Jesus is God. Luke 2, verse 11. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That term Lord is the Greek word kurios. When they translated the Old Testament into Greek, they used that word to translate the name Yahweh. In your Bibles, when you look at your Bible and you see Lord, and it's in all caps, it's the name of Yahweh. And we're going to see later in the New Testament where they quote the Old Testament and they use Lord in place of Yahweh. By calling him Lord, this angel is saying this is God. The disciples all affirm that Jesus was God. John 20, verse 28, you'll remember what Thomas said. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. This is a great verse to remember. Jehovah's Witnesses, when they show up at your door, they'll deny that Jesus is God. And usually they'll ask you something like, would you like to talk about a verse of the Bible? Say, absolutely. Let's go to John 20, 28. And in their Bible, in the New World Translation, it's translated just like this. My Lord and my God. And they'll read it and they'll get the shocked look on their face. And then they don't want to talk to you anymore clearly calls him God. Matthew 14, verse 33, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. They describe him as being God's son, and as a result, what do they do? They worship him. If they thought he was just a created being, or just another man, or just another prophet, they would not have worshipped him. And if Jesus was just a man or just a prophet, he should have told them, get up, stop worshiping me. Multiple New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Spirit, affirm that Jesus is God. Paul in Romans, not, uh, excuse me, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A very clear statement. Jesus is God. Colossians 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2, 9, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. These men are writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and they're ascribing to Jesus deity. Not only is He God, but He is the exact representation of the Father. Hebrews 1, verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He shares the same nature as the Father. Paul, Romans 9, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Speaking of Jesus, you could take that last little phrase, God blessed forever, and you could translate it, the eternally blessed God. 
clear, unambiguous statements that Jesus is God. Peter, 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews 1, verse 8. He quotes the Old Testament, he quotes Psalm 45, and he applies it to Jesus. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. He's saying this about the Son. He is saying this about Christ. He looks at the Old Testament, Psalm 45, and says Psalm 45 is talking about Jesus. At this point, the Mormons would say, sure, he's God. He's not the God. He's a God. He's a God among many gods. And that's all this verse is saying. He is a God. But he's not Yahweh. He's not the one God of the Bible. Okay. The writer of the Hebrews also quotes another psalm. Psalm 102. I want to go back to Psalm 102 real quick, just to give you some context. Psalm 102 is a prayer. It's written to Yahweh. We know that because Psalm 102, verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Literally, hear my prayer, O Yahweh. This psalm is addressed to Yahweh. And every time afterwards where you see that that word, you, all of those yous are references to Yahweh. And when you get down to verse 25 of Psalm 102, it says, Of old you have founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Who is the your? It's Yahweh. Remember that highlighted sentence. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Referring to Yahweh. Hebrews 1, verse 10. The writer of the Hebrews says of Jesus, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The writer of the Hebrews looks back at Psalm 102, that's referring to Yahweh, and he applies that verse to Jesus Christ. This is Yahweh. And then the Jehovah's Witnesses come in and say, well, wait a minute. Jesus never said he was God. Jesus never claimed to be deity. Now, first of all, when they say that, understand that's an argument from silence. It's a logical fallacy. Don't buy that. Secondly, yes, he did. Multiple times. John 9, verse 35 through 38, Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, I said, do you believe in the Son of Man? By the way, Son of Man is a reference to Daniel 7. It's a messianic reference, and it was always considered to be, de- to be a statement of deity. He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. Jesus points to himself and says, I am the Son of Man. I am the divine Messiah that was promised in Daniel 7. And this man says, Lord, I believed, and he fell down, and he worshipped him. That man understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And he understood Jesus to be claiming to be divine. And so he worshipped him. And once again, if Jesus was not God, what should he have done? Get up on your feet. What are you doing? Just like the angel did in the book of Revelation. Jesus claimed to be God in John 10. I and the Father are one. To claim to be equal with the Father is to claim to be God. You can't say, I and the Father are one, but I'm not God. John 10, verse 30, 32. We're going to continue this, and there's a typo here. See? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? I and the Father are one. They all pick up rocks. They're about to kill him. And he says, look, I healed some people. I did a whole bunch of good works. Why are you going to kill me? 
Here's their answer. The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, the Jews understood exactly what he was saying. It was a claim to deity. Their response proves it. They were going to kill him for it. Jesus is only, not only described as being God, he called himself God. He's also given the attributes of God. He is said to be eternal. Jesus, in uh, John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. First of all, I am. It's a reference back to Exodus 3.14 at the burning bush. But notice he says before Abraham was born. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Christ. Jesus wasn't even 35 yet, physically. They understood this was claiming that Jesus existed prior to Abraham. The only way that's possible is if he is eternal. And to call himself I am is a statement to eternality. Jesus is described as being omniscient. John 1, verse 47 48. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He's never met him, personally. But he knows exactly who he is. Jesus is omnipresent. You can say there's omnipresence in John 1 there. Jesus is omnipresent, Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is not talking about prayer. This is talking about church discipline. Just want to make sure we get the context right. Wherever church discipline is happening, according to the Bible, Jesus promises to be in their midst. It's only possible if he's omnipresent. He can't be in multiple places at once if he's not omnipresent. Jesus is immutable. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Immutability is only an attribute of God. We are not immutable. We change all the time. Jesus is omnipotent. Luke, um, yeah, Luke 7, verse 14. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Then the dead man sat up. And began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. He raises people from the dead. Jesus is described as being holy, completely set apart from sin. 1 John 3, verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Hebrews 7, verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. There you have a complete picture of the holiness of God. You have the moral and the majestic holiness. The moral completely set apart from sin, completely separated from sinners, and he is exalted above the heavens. He's completely separated from his creation. Jesus does the works of God. He's described as God. He claims to be God. He exercises the privileges of God. We saw that he received worship. In other places, he says he forgives sins. The New Testament writers all referred to him as being God. Again, is there biblical evidence to prove that Jesus is God? Absolutely. And there's more that I wasn't able to show you. Because we don't have time. The Holy Spirit is God. He is directly described as God. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells within you? The Spirit of God is God. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Again, the Lord here is the Greek word kurios. Same word that was used in Hebrews 1.10 to describe Yahweh. The Spirit of the Lord. The Lord is the Spirit. Yahweh is a Spirit. Acts 5, story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias, you have lied you, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And the problem there is that you have not lied to men. You've lied to who? God. You guys know the story, so I'm not going to read it. Acts 5.9. Sapphira, his wife, comes back. She has the same fate. She lied to God too. And Again, the Spirit of the Lord is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Yahweh. Luke 4, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus speaking. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Who else is going to anoint Jesus to preach? The Spirit is given the attributes of God. He's described as holy. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's described as being eternal, Hebrews 9, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish? Notice the Spirit there is the eternal Spirit. The Spirit is described as being omniscient, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. He knows all things. That's a very well-known verse. He knows the thoughts of men and the thoughts of God. The Spirit is being described as omnipotent, having all power. Romans 15, verse 19, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. The signs and wonders were performed through the power of the Spirit. The Spirit also has the attributes of God, but also receives the rights and the prerogatives of God. Uh, To look at this one, we need to stop for a second and realize these are going to talk about not insulting or grieving the Spirit. And the implication here is you shouldn't insult or grieve the Spirit. You're supposed to worship Him. Hebrews 10, verse 29. How much severe a punishment do you think He will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He has been sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? The covenant is the covenant of God alone. And you've insulted that covenant. The Spirit has the right to issue commands, eight, uh, Acts 8, verse 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join, this, uh, join his chariot. Speaking of Philip the evangelist. The Spirit performs the works of God. He resurrects to new life. The Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Remember, it was also in Romans 6 that uh, it says that the Father raised him from the dead. Genesis 1, verse 2, the Spirit is involved in creation. All right, are you seeing the point? The Spirit is God. He has the attributes of God. He performs the works of God. He receives the prerogatives of God. Quick review. There is only one God. That one God is described as a plural unity. There are three persons who are described in that person or in that unity. Each one is said to be God, each one is said to perform the works of God, and each one exercises the rights of God. That is the biblical foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity. Any questions or comments? That was like a fire hydrant, right? Questions or comments? Take that as a no. Um, These slides are going to be online, so if you want to download them so you have the verses, they will be there for you. All right? Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that uh, you have revealed yourself, that even though you are beyond our full comprehension, you are beyond our full understanding, that you have revealed yourself clearly enough that we can know for certain who and what you are, that we know for certain that there is only one God 
You exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and all three of those persons are involved not only in our creation, but in our redemption. And so we thank you so much for that grace, for that mercy. We just ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would find our worship to be pleasing to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.